Hi, I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. You're listening to She Said, She Said. Brittany Underwood is the CEO of global impact jewelry company, The Ecola Project. Brittany's life trajectory was altered forever when in college she met a Ugandan woman named Sarah. The power of that meeting inspired Brittany's passion for helping others, and the impact thus far has helped create both financial independence and economic prosperity for women in Uganda as well as in the United States. Akola, when translated, means she works. Brittany is a woman who is raising the bar for social impact businesses. Her story is a powerful one. She's a living, breathing example of the power of an individual. Her story also illustrates the value to society when women are given the support to lift themselves and their children out of poverty, giving them tools and the education that they need to invest in themselves so that they can then in turn invest in others. There is a lot that we can learn from Brittany's story and I am delighted to welcome Brittany to She Said, She Said this morning. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Well, I'm so happy to be here with you in Dallas, Texas. So thank you for making the time. Absolutely. You created what is now known as a cutting edge model for social impact. But that's not where you started. I would love for you to tell us the story of where this initial passion came from. Oh gosh, yes. This uh, it's funny with a cola now. You know, this has been going on for 15 years, and so many people date our brand and movement back to our Neiman Marcus launch in 2016. But the story actually began in 2004, <laughs> so it was you know a decade or more uh, before that. Um, and I was a sophomore at SMU. Had no intention of doing any of this. I was, you know, sorority girl, enjoying having a lot of fun, which SMU is a fun school, um, and not thinking a lot about anyone but myself. Um, and I had two friends who just promised we'd have a summer adventure, and we were going to go somewhere in the world and, and teach. And I tuned out of the conversation for about a week, and they signed us up to go to Uganda. <laughs> I thought I found out. And first of all, I didn't know where Uganda was on the map. Uh, I did not know it was in East Africa. I learned that. Um, and, and basically said, like, wait a minute. I thought we were going to, like, Europe, maybe Eastern Europe. But I was not signing up for, you know, a summer without power or electricity in a rural village in East Africa. And they basically forced me on the plane. I mean, they dragged me to Uganda. And I got there. And I just was completely overwhelmed. I had never witnessed extreme poverty. I got really sick the first week I was there. And I, I just, I didn't know how to process everything that was going on. Did and you so, try to come home? Uh, yeah, I actually had an exit plan, this backup plan with my dad that he was going to create a family emergency like three weeks in and I was going to fly home. I told my, my friends found out three weeks in that I had actually like staged that just in case. They still to this day, like 15 years later, give me such a hard time about it. But yeah, I had an exit plan. I was like, I'm not staying here all summer. This is horrible. And, um, you know, it's, it's funny because um, 
I, w- I was so disengaged that a local pastor that we were working with the first two weeks we were there who was introducing us to the community um, and just, you know, teaching us about Uganda, um, he just, he noticed, I mean, clearly there was something wrong with my heart, <laughs> you know, and he was like, oh, I'm going to pray for this sweet girl from America. And uh, he said, you know, I want you to meet a woman in our village who I think will inspire you. So I said, okay, and I uh, followed him up this tiny dirt road um, to a shack um, outside of Uganda's capital city, Kampala, and it was there that I met Sarah, the woman who, I mean, completely and utterly changed my life. Um, And I walked in the door, and she had this roll of bamboo mats in the corner. And I asked her what they were for, and she said, children. Children sleep on these mats. And I thought... Oh my gosh, like children sleeping on these bamboo mats on a a floor, this, I mean, truly the size of my closet. She had for three years felt that God had called her to take street kids into her home. So without any way to provide for them, um, she just let them take shelter and she would share the little bit of food that her husband gave her each week. He worked in the city, so he didn't even know there were kids living in his home during the week. Um, And she'd share that little bit of food. Uh, for her and her daughter with other kids so she literally went hungry um, and and let her daughter which now being a mom like understanding gosh it's one thing if you go hungry for other you know for the sake of other people but for your child to go hungry to feed other children like that's just a level of sacrifice that I, i mean i had never seen before and in my life and it completely shook me out of my complacency yeah talk about what happened next yeah, so I mean, just through a series of events, um, I just had this burden, um, wanted to, to help and, and thought, what could I do? I'm only 19 at the time. And I, I'd come back to the U.S. and, you know, the initial thought was, well, maybe I can send over some money, right? Just this very Western idea of solving problems. Like, oh, I'll just I'll send a couple hundred dollars and like they can eat and I won't feel bad about it anymore. Um, so it started out that way. And then it turned out that they needed a building. Um, they, you know, needed a home for, for the kids. And um, they had found a sponsorship program that was feeding the kids and sending them to school. And they, they needed a building. And I just felt this overwhelming burden of like, well, why, why can't I do that? Why can't I help? You know, not mm-hmm. thinking this is going to be the rest, <laughs> rest of my life, you know, right. or whatever. Just, you know, 20 years old at that time. And uh, just thought, well, how hard could that be? Like, we'll figure that out, yeah. right? And so it started as this tiny project when I was in college, um, you know, to raise money to build this little home for Sarah so her, her kids would have beds. And by the time I graduated college, it had turned into this massive vision to build a three-story orphanage home for every orphan child in the whole community. And so raised a bit of money before I graduated and then realized, which it's funny that I hadn't even, you know, connected these dots, that I needed to go over there and make sure the building actually happened. Like, I had to oversee this, right? People entrusted us with their money. And so I moved to Uganda in 2006 with three friends who put their post-college jobs on hold. And that was the beginning of my journey in Africa. Based on how you've described yourself prior to going to Uganda the first time, what did your friends think when you came back? What did your family think? What was their reaction? You had to have had naysayers oh, who were like, I okay, mean, this is a fake. Well, I didn't tell anyone. So I, I knew that. And I was <gasps> I, I was smart enough to you not tell anyone. My best friends at SMU did not find out that I was doing this. 
until two years after I had raised the funds and I was about to move to Uganda and had a fundraiser in Dallas and I invited them because I just thought they've got to see. I mean, I didn't my very best friends because I thought they would think I just completely fell off my rocker. Well, who was, and I was helping you? Insecure about it. So, <laughs> I, well, I had, so I did, I had um, my friends at SMU and then I led a, like a young life group in Dallas. And so I, I met friends that were already graduated from college that are a little bit older and we were all on a ski trip and I hadn't shown anyone and by this point I had edited a fundraising video because I was a journalism major and I thought you know the only way I can raise money for this building is if someone could if they could just see and hear from Sarah like they would feel as compelled as I felt to give and so I'd, I'd, I'd you know created this video and I hadn't shown it to anyone we were on a ski trip and I just said um I'm gonna I want to show y'all something and I'm not going to tell you until you watch it. I just want your reaction and that's it. So I put it in the DVD player. We're in Beaver Creek. I'll never forget. And they watched the video and like we're in tears. And one of my friends, Jen, basically said like, I will do anything to help you make this work. And she did. She came (laughs) alongside me to raise the money and figure this all out. And, And next thing I knew, I was on my way to Uganda. That's amazing. Yeah. That's really amazing. Okay, so you started with the idea of an orphanage. Yeah. But then you found fairly soon that you needed yes. to pivot. Yes. And I'm curious about, was it hard for you to accept that that was not going to be the answer, that you needed something bigger? Was was that disappointing to you? Or was it just more like, a, this is a piece in the puzzle? It was the hardest probably the hardest moment in my life. Um, one of the hardest moments. Um, I was 25. We actually had just opened the orphanage. It was late 2008, early 2009. That took you how many years? Max? Gosh, three years to build. And I mean, we, you were we there went on the ground, on the ground and then coming back here to fundraise. So I was sort of all over the place, but yeah, mainly on the ground and pre-husband, pre-children, pre-husband, pre-children. And it was funny, ironically, CNN got a hold of the footage because we were so young and it had, you know, these four young kids had built this orphanage and, and it aired nationally and internationally at the very moment we were like, this is not, this is not the right model. And so it's like, great. Now we probably could have raised money for like 20 more orphanages at that point if we wanted to and and just knew it wasn't right and there was there was a lot of factors that went into that um I think really early on six months even um into moving to Uganda just getting to know the community getting to know other women hearing their stories their dreams their hopes like they didn't want someone to come in and build a building they wanted to take care of the kids themselves that was their passion that was their calling that was their role and so essentially we were taking that away from women by by creating a structure to, to send kids and also taking kids out of families they they could be in. Really what the women needed was an income. They just needed money. If I could have, re, you know, if I knew what I knew now, in the beginning when I met Sarah, it, w- it was so obvious that like she was fully equipped to care for them. Like she had a system going. She had the passion, the heart, the space. She just needed some kind of income to make sure the kids were eating, that they were in school and they had beds. And the downside of a sponsorship program is it's virtually a handout model, right? Like it's, a generally doesn't continue on, you know, forever. And B, it doesn't, you know, teach women like Sarah that that they actually have the ability to figure that out themselves and solve their own local problems, which they're highly capable of doing. So um, the orphanage model seemed a little disempowering. 
Um, it cut out, you know, the true caretakers of the kids, which were these women in the village. And also it's just, I mean, we had so many tough things happen, like corruption, misuse of the asset. I mean, you name it. And, you know, here I'm 25 at this point when this is happening. This was 10 years ago. And I mean, I was like on the ground, like just in tears, completely disillusioned thinking I just spent, you know, <laughs> my first like several years out of college while my friends are in New York getting married, like having fun in a village, figuring this out. And like, this isn't even the right thing. And, and, and did I hurt more than I helped? Like, did I actually create more hurt? And I still wrestle with that. I'm not sure if we hurt or we helped more. And I'll never forget, I, I went to a mentor of mine in Uganda and just said, I'm out of here. Like, I'm done. Like, I, I don't even know if this has really helped. Like, I'm not coming back. Like, and, and truthfully, I just don't think Westerners should, like, get involved. Like, there's local solutions here. And, you know, what are we doing anyways? We just mess everything up. And he said, you know, that's the best problem <laughs> with millennials. It's just like you, 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 you dive into something, like, with tons of passion. And it doesn't work out the way you think it's going to. And you just quit. And he was like, well, what if you, what if you committed to this country? And what if you took everything you learned over the past several years to create a better model, a better way? He was like, what if, what if you committed? And it shifted, I mean, totally shifted the way I thought about, you know, this kind of devastating, like, wait a minute, we just built this million dollar orphanage. And like, I'm not quite sure if it's helping or hurting the community to what if we, we've learned so much over the past several years, like there's got to be a better way. There's still this problem of orphan and disadvantaged kids and kids who aren't in school and not eating. And there's, and yet there's this answer. There's women everywhere who feel like it's their calling to help them. Like, what do they need? Like, what what's the real solution here? And that's when it completely dawned on me that it's it's an income. It's, it's, it's some kind of dependable income that the women need where they can still be there for their kids, but, but have the money to provide for them. And that was the genesis of a cola, mm-hmm. which means she works. Yeah. So you came back to the U.S. to work on developing this model, right? You went back to school. I went back to school. Yeah. So was it hard to take a break may not be the right word because I'm sure you stayed very connected to what was yeah. happening on the ground yeah. there, but still going back to school that can be a tough yes. decision to make regardless of what the circumstances are. You've yep. been in the workforce for a while yep. once you've launched your career and then you decide, okay, I want to go back to law school or get an yeah. MBA or in your case, work on international development, yeah, right? absolutely. How hard was it to make that decision? It was really hard. I mean, I think I didn't, I was so burned out and I didn't realize how burned out I which I think generally happens. You like, you once you hit the wall, there's a whole like you know span of time right before you hit the wall that like isn't very good and you hadn't hit the wall yet so you didn't know you have to shift but like the adrenaline was I was going. so burned out emotionally spiritually physically like I mean just in every single way um, to the point where I, I wasn't actually very useful like I I wasn't in the right mindset even like I just was beyond burned out and I had a college professor who came on our board and we call it our <laughs> our fight on the Nile River, which is my favorite. She's an uh, amazing African-American professor who teaches race relations and nonprofit at SMU, helped me form this organization. And she was over there in Uganda when I was probably at my worst. 
And she basically almost shook me and was like, you need to grow up. She told me actually to put my big girl panties on and go to, <laughs> go to grad school. And I was so mad at the time because I just, you know, I, I didn't want to see what I was seeing and it was hard to, and, uh, and she literally was like, you need, you need to, you need to go and learn more and you need to grow up, you know? And, and she was right. I needed both. And, um, really that moment, um, sent me to grad school and I was like I've got to take a break and those two years at Fuller I think it was 2010 to 2012 we would not be the organization we are if I wouldn't have taken that time Mm -hmm. away from everything um we you know had an executive director that was running our programs in Uganda so I completely I mean I was there and available by phone and checked in a couple times a week but I, I really took a break and studied development theory and wanted to to figure out, you know, gosh, okay, there's a problem, there's a solution here, but like, how do we do this the right way? Culturally, what's the, you know, the right way to enter into these agrarian communities as Westerners? Like, how do we set this up in the right way? And what I learned is, you know, it's not just what you do, it's how you do it. If our goal was to empower women so they could care for their kids, it's not just enough to help them generate an income, right? Like that's step one, but there's a lot more that goes to empowering them to bring their families out of poverty. And and it's empowering them through the process as much as it is through kind of the end goal. And, and that meant how do we get leadership into their hands? How do we train them to be the teachers, to be the practitioners on the ground, to implement their own programs, to learn how to design them, to learn how to run a business um, versus us just doing it, you know, for them. Um, so kind of redesigned, you know, what a, what I wanted a cola to be. And we had sort of in a grassroots way started it in 2007. So we had 15 women several years before I went to grad school, while we were finishing the orphanage, you know, had this realization of, gosh, there's got to be this this better way, had 15 women making jewelry under a tree because we thought, you know, how can we help them generate an income? These women don't have an education, no background, they don't own land, they're in crisis, like, how can how can we equip them to have income? And we picked jewelry because it was easy to ship. I had some friends who owned boutiques. It was easy to train women. I mean, that little thought, which Neiman Marcus always laughs. They're like, don't tell people that. That's, I mean, that little thought went into your whole brand, but it did. Um, and so started with those women. And by 2010, right before I left for grad school, it was this aha moment of not only do we need to figure out how to empower women through the process, which is why... I, you know, ship myself off to Fuller, but kind of the second piece that's totally set a cola apart, you know, as a, as a social business, and that was investing in our vertical infrastructure. If women were making, you know, products under a tree, which they were, we could never compete. The quality would, uh, we could never compete in the global marketplace. People would buy it, you know, as sort of a fair trade charity purchase, but like they weren't going to buy it, you know, for every occasion, you know, and, and we, and we want to, we realize if we want to, you know, impact a lot of women, we've got to compete, you know, against top brands in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and this has to be as successful as possible because the more successful it is, the more women we can impact. And so that's when we made the decision to start building the infrastructure for economic opportunity. Um, and we knew how to build buildings because mm-hmm. we built the orphanage. Right, so right. we bought the land. We knew how to do that. We, you know, ground up, built training centers and workshops for women 
in villages where we are the only tin roof. We drilled 23 water wells because women were fetching water all day and they couldn't work. So we were addressing the barriers and economic opportunity. And meanwhile, I was studying every single (laughs) international development theorist to try to figure out like what is our unique model to not just again help women generate income, but to empower them to become an agent of transformation themselves so they could unlock change in their community with or without a cola. And so I came back in 2012 with this great model. And I'll never forget, I dropped, I had like six binders. I mean, I had like written out all of these theories that I wanted us to, you know, um, to, you know, manifest in Uganda. And I I dropped it on our uh, chief impact officer's desk and basically said, like, can you build this out? (laughs) And she took that and I mean, and just recreated it and built our development model over the past, um, you know, eight years. And um, it's a model that not only helps women generate generate income, but it truly brings their families out of poverty. Um, so it's been fun to test and refine that. But yeah, it all started with a professor telling me to put my big girl panties on and go to grad school. <laughs> so It's really good advice. And yeah, you were open to it. it I, I didn't have a choice. Like I just, I mean, I hit that wall so hard. I mean, I've hit it several times over the past 15 years several years ago, which I'll talk about kind of later in this journey when we launched their Neiman Marcus, I hit it again. I think I'm one of those people that until I hit that wall, man, I'm going (laughs) to go as fast as I can. And it's got to almost break me to get, to get me to kind of pause and step back. Um, but it, it, that was such an important time in this journey. So if you had to sort of simplify this for the audience so that they understand what the, the individual components are to the model, Mm -hmm. Walk me through yeah. what that looks like, and and also why jewelry. Yeah, I mean, I know that you know that was an artisan yeah. trade, so yeah. there were already skills that existed. Right. But but why jewelry and not yeah. something else? Basically, how our model works is we're a hybrid, so we have a for-profit and non-profit component of what we do. Um, we have a for-profit benefit corporation, a business that basically creates designs and does the marketing and um, sort of the infrastructure for the brand um, so we can sell a product, right? So our Cola brand works with Neiman Marcus, Saks Fifth Avenue, now Nordstrom as well. And we create, you know, jewelry collections, um, market them to the retailer, and they buy product. Once they buy the product, we then create a purchase order that goes to our manufacturing business in Uganda um, that we've built you know, over the past 10 years that's fully staffed by women in crisis. And they produce that order um, for you know, the for-profit business. And then we have a Cola Academy, which is our nonprofit social service provider. And that truly is, I mean, it's, it's the heartbeat of what we do. And our Cola Academy programs do all the things that I talked about. I mean, they're designed to empower women through the process to take a woman who's in abject poverty in a crisis situation and actually train her in some, I mean, very technical skills to make jewelry. We just, we, we don't just assemble jewelry. Our women hand make beads. They hand cut horn, anacoli cow horn. They create raffia tassels. I mean, from scratch, like they're not artisans. They're women who were in a dire situation with an average of 10 dependents who they couldn't care for. I mean, our cola, academy programs really bring them from that situation to a woman who's able to show up at work um, and who's ready and then a cola academy wraps around that woman when she works for a cola to ensure that she has all the training and the classes she needs to learn how to use her income to actually create change Mm -hmm. because we realized back in 2010 we had um, gosh like one year where five women died of childbirth in our program 
And we thought, how in the world is that the case? They're receiving a living wage. Like, they had the money to go to the clinic. And there was a clinic. And there was a clinic. So why did they die in their homes? And it turned out they either had superstitions around going to the doctor or they didn't even know there was a clinic five miles away. And that's when we realized, like, this is actually almost irresponsible to help women in, in these kind of situations generate an income if we don't teach them how they can actually use it to make their life better, their maternal health, how they can use it to strengthen their families, what their options are for school, how they can you know save and create other businesses with that income to create greater levels of sustainability, like all that's so important. I mean, that's what a Cola Academy does. And, and again, that's what completely sets us apart from other social businesses. Because most social businesses, you know, do what we do, which is, you know, market a product, design it, sell it, have some kind of group produce it, mostly like an artisan group in most cases. And that's great. And they're helping, you know, artisans create a wage. And that's important. But in, in our case, our target was a crisis population, not artisans. It was the women, you know, who, who had all these orphan disadvantaged kids and couldn't take care of them. So it required so much more than that. I'm not only creating that vertical infrastructure, but those really intentional programs to really bring the family out of poverty. Talk a bit about sort of the flip side of this and the women who are coming out of really horrific situations, either sexual trafficking or prostitution, or maybe they've been in prison. They are part of your fulfillment center model here in the U.S. Talk a bit about those women as well. Fast forward, I went to grad school and came back with this new model. And, you know, we had built our manufacturing business in Uganda to serve women in crisis situations. And I had this amazing opportunity um, to meet the CEO of Neiman Marcus. And this was in 2016. This was our, if anyone asks, like, what's your big break? I mean, for us, this was this was everything. I mean, it set us up as a real retail fashion brand. Um, and <laughs> Karen at the time, Katz, yeah, who's just one of the most amazing women I've, I've ever met. Um, she was on her way out. I didn't know that. She left Neiman Marcus, I guess, eight months after we um, launched a cola. And um, she gave me 10 minutes. And she had heard about our story and agreed to meet. And and I kind of thought, I mean, a 10-minute meeting sort of a blow-off meeting. It's sort of like, I, you know, like <laughs> someone worked really hard to get that meeting for us. And she was like, fine, I'll meet with them. But it was this amazing thing that happened. We are in this, you know, ma- mahogany boardroom at Neiman Marcus. And I just thought, man, I've got 10 minutes to get this story across and to just see if there's any way they could help us get our jewelry up into the luxury market. And I told her the story. And I said, Karen, here's the thing. Not only can we impact women in Uganda, but I believe we can impact women in Dallas with this model as well. And I need a more elevated product to do that. And kind of with like a little bit of tears in her eyes, Karen, Karen, it's like you can't totally tell, but it was, you know, she definitely, it impacted her. At the end of 10 minutes, she was like, create a more elevated collection and come back and we'll go from there. Um, and I thought, oh gosh, at least I'm a foot in the door. You know, there's a there's a chance. And she was like, I think it's really special that you not only want to impact women in Uganda, but also here in Dallas um, through your supply chain. Um, and again, our thought was if, you know, women in Uganda could make the jewelry um, in Dallas, women could finish some of the top level pieces. Um, they could also run the distribution center. They could package the product, tag it, and which is kind of what we focus on now, you know, Potentially, they could even sell the jewelry. Could we empower women in crisis situations here to have an income through sales? So it was this idea of this kind of full impact model. And I I came back to Karen 
with a collection and they launched us in every single Neiman Marcus store nationwide. It was an unprecedented national rollout. Um, how soon? How, how, how long? Four months. <laughs> so from the 10 minute meeting yes. to the launch was four months. Oh no, 10 minute meeting was January. We came back in April, May and in April, May they said, they wanted product by July for every store. So wow. keep in mind, like we didn't even have a Dallas Impact model at that point. Like we thought, you know, at best case scenario, they would launch us in like two stores, test the brand and, you know, grow into other stores. We had no idea. And, and every mentor, every, you know, expert in this space that we talked to had no idea that this would end up being a national launch. And so we, <laughs> we employed, oh my gosh, that first year, a hundred women in Dallas, you know, in our first year. Um, that was our goal for ten years, but um, to help package the product and, and the high-level assembly for the pieces we couldn't do in Uganda, and um, to kind of get that hundred to five hundred dollar price point for Neiman Marcus. And you know, I I was pregnant at the time, and this is like, I mean, I think this always happens, especially with women. I've been doing this not for 15 years. Like we could have had that amazing growth opportunity at any point. And of course it happened when I had a one, I had a one-year-old and had just found out that I was pregnant with my second, you know, <laughs> child. Um, I found out two weeks after the Neiman's meeting um, that we were, you know, expecting our second. And we launched through Neiman Marcus in September and my son was due in October. Oh. And at this point, we're tiny. You know, we had this huge um, infrastructure in Uganda. We had, you know, 30 people on our team in this manufacturing business. But stateside, there were, there were about five of us. Like, we did not have, you know, the infrastructure to support a national retail launch. Right. You know, we were just starting to build the brand. And um, <laughs> in that season, I mean, I still, like, I don't even remember parts of it. Like, looking back, I'm like, that was so crazy. I cannot believe my marriage survived that. I can't believe I actually have a child in the midst of that. you had baby brain. I had a baby brain. I wasn't (laughs) sleeping. I actually had postpartum a little bit because I had two babies back-to-back so quickly that my hormones were going nuts. Like, I mean, a cola should have fallen apart during that season, and I personally should have completely. Um, And then a lot of things did. Like, we had to, I mean, that that was a tough season of figuring it out. Luckily, we nailed Neiman Marcus. Um, We became a top 10 jewelry brand in our first season, which no one expected. We didn't even have to have a designer at that point. I mean, we just kind of threw this thing together. Um, But, man, I mean, we lost board members during that season, like, it was nasty. I mean, it was just, we grew so much faster than what we were prepared Mm -hmm. to grow. And again, meanwhile, I'm, you know, (laughs) I had a child two weeks after our launch, we had this big Dallas launch. And two weeks after that, I had my my second son and I was on an airplane a week and a half after he was born. I mean, pumping under my sweater. I mean, I got to the point where I was so tired that I didn't even go to the bathroom on these Southwest flights. I just, there's two men sitting next to me and I just, (laughs) I wore a big sweater and I just pumped (laughs) sitting in my airplane seat because I was so exhausted and opening these you know, stores and launches in Atlanta and Palm Beach, and they're still um, wondering what that word. I went with that. Yeah, I was like, "Well, the engine's so loud <laughs> that, no, that they, the- yeah, it's a great. I mean, the engine was so loud you couldn't really hear that. I mean, because pumps are really loud, and um, and I, yeah, that season it was it was our big break, and it also was kind of that second season of just like. I mean, the fire of refinement, you know, just just like the first when, you know, the orphanage didn't work and I went to grad school and like, you know, just had to grow up a little bit. That was the second season of like, it was the most 
successful moment of our brand. It set us up to now be in Saks Fifth Avenue and Nordstrom and, I mean, just really expanding our brand nationally and in the luxury and affordable luxury space. But it took a toll. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I can talk about this in a second, but it taught me a lot about balance and motherhood and family and that you cannot, I think I had this idea that, like, nothing would change. Like, I have kids that I've always, you know, I would do anything for cola. Like, I'd, you know, there's an issue in Uganda, and I'd hop on a plane, and I was there, figure it out, fly home. Like, it was my life, and it kind of has to be when you're building something like this. But then you get married as a woman, and then you have kids, and I think until you hit that wall, you don't realize, like, I can't operate the way I've been operating and have a family. Right. You know, and something's got to give, and that's kind of been this season yeah. for me. Yeah. How much, we talk a lot about perfection on this podcast, yeah. and for something, a, a cause, an idea, something this big that you are so passionate about, to turn that over, to turn elements over yeah. to someone else yep. in order to make it successful, which you have to do because yep. you can't do it all by yourself. How difficult was that? I mean, I think until I ran into a wall, difficult, but then suddenly you you run head into that wall again, which I'm really good at. And you realize like, I can't, I mean, I can't do all of this by myself. And um, I've got to build a team. And I think what was hard is I look back and think like, could I have done that differently? That season where, you know, we had no idea that Neiman's was going to launch us in every store. And I mean, have that huge rollout we would could have never prepared for that or expected it or you know so there's nothing I could have done ahead of that it happened and I had four months to (laughs) our team had four months to execute and the team Um, was how big at that I mean like we had less than five people in Dallas like pulling this off wow we had to do most of our production for our first season here in Dallas because we couldn't even get gemstones and these kind of uh higher-end materials that we mix with the local materials that our women make in Uganda. We couldn't even get them to Uganda in time. So we produced and you know, the, almost the entire collection here in Dallas um, with women that we trained from scratch. We contacted 15 nonprofits. They sent us all their women who needed a you know, temporary work opportunity, $15 an hour wage, and you know, employed half the city for that first, but I had to figure that out. So not only do we have to figure out the designs and the marketing and how to launch it with no money as a nonprofit at the time, we weren't in a dual structure at that point either. So we had no resources, but we also had to figure out how to produce it all locally. It's not like we just did all of this and sent it to a factory. Like we were making it and targeting women in crisis because that's our mission. So we, we didn't want to stray from that. So it was so crazy. And I, I just, looking back, I don't know if I could have done it differently. Like I needed to do what I needed to do to get this thing off the ground. But I think what I've learned is with my family, if there's a three or four month or five month season like that, fine. You know, like you pull together, like, you know, your husband helps you figure it out. Like you work at, as a team, you get the help you need, but it can't lie. I can't keep on going. <laughs> you know, like there's gotta be, you can't run like that with a family that fast for any longer than that. Um, and I think that's what I learned as, you know, this was all happening in 2016, 2017. And, you know, by 2018, I realized like, I've got to create some balance. And that means building a team. And at that point, I think we had built a brand and been so successful um, in that space that we could finally attract the talent. I think that's why I don't know if I could have done it differently earlier, because I don't think we would have been able to attract the talent that we can now attract because we have some proof of concept in the in the retail world and so now as soon as we got to that space you know my my like 
you know, what I was running towards was how can I build the best team possible so I can get to the point, which I think I'm just getting to now, where I only do what no one else can do. I mean, literally my litmus test to like what I say yes to is if someone else can do it, it should not be me. And, and I really only say yes to the things that only I can uniquely do and that I'm uniquely created to do. And, um, and those, that's not a lot of stuff. Like most things, most people can do. And so I'm, I'm now taking on the role more as founder, um, and handing over the day-to-day operations to our, our, I mean, amazing, um, leader and, and team that we've built, um, and, and focusing on where we're going and, and how to get there more than running the whole business, which, hey, I'm a visionary. It's not my strength to run a business. I mean, I'm more, I can see where it can go. I can get the energy there. But when it comes to the execution game, that's not my strength anyway. So I think it's, it was easier to let that go for that reason. But also just realizing like there's a team of people who are much better equipped to execute on this than I am. So gonna I'm gonna let them I'm gonna let them do it and yeah. I'm gonna do what I can uniquely do and that's that's where I am now yeah are you beginning to see other uh sort of similar Ecola projects cropping up yeah. where other entities are using your model yes yes it's a it's really fun um here in Dallas and you know around the U.S. to see um other groups kind of adopting this social enterprise model and creating products that not only give back, but like the way they're created and give back and, and change lives, the kind of that vertical supply chain that, you know, creates jobs and opportunity as products are made, like definitely seeing more and more of that in the marketplace. What what I haven't seen, and I think this is going to be the next 10 years that I think we'll see is the fact that we built our manufacturing business has changed the game. Um, we could not retail at Neiman's, Nordstrom or Saks at the level that we're retailing unless we owned and ran our manufacturing business. Because if women were making products in an artisanal context, which is considered cottage industry, under a tree, you cannot get the quality. You cannot... And the price point is and, and, and the price yeah. point. Yeah, you can't, you can't command that higher price point. And so I think we're able to target uniquely a demographic of women in crisis but in a highly sophisticated way, um, we produce our products so we can sell them from, you know, they sell from $50 to $500. Um, and we're working on a line right now, it goes from $500 to $3,000, you know, and, and we have to, you actually have to build it for that, that to happen, not just create kind of the artisan partnership model. So I think I've seen a lot of that kind of artisan partnership model the past 10 years, and I think the next 10 years, we're going to see a lot more of what we're doing, which is, you know, you actually take the time to build the manufacturing base, but target a disadvantaged population. So then you can actually compete in retail and kind of high retail locations and and really build a brand. You've also launched a lower price point brand as well. Talk a bit about the thought process there. You've got a partnership with Walmart, as I understand it. Yep. So we, um, we we created another brand called One Bead, One Hope. And it is. I think these lovely beauties that I have on, which we'll we'll include yes. in the photographs. I think these are one one bead one. Yes, hope, right? and it's more affordable. It's yeah. it's you know fifteen dollars to fifty dollars, and it uses kind of more affordable materials um, as well, and and looks different than our 
you know, a cola line and, um, it was in Macy's story recently. And, um, we're looking at a fun collaboration with Kohl's Walmart. We're doing some fun stuff with, and, uh, actually carnival cruise line as well. So we, we have, a, um, yeah, a, another brand that's able to create those jobs as well at that lower price point. So our focus is our affordable luxury, luxury brand with a cola, but, we love creating jobs. So when we saw that there was a gap in the marketplace for that kind of volume retail as well, we wanted to see if we could play there too. Yeah. So it's been really fun. I would love for you to go and, and talk a little bit more about putting together markets in places in the world where it is just difficult to do business. And I looked up the, I think it's the World Bank's yeah. mo- um, model or statistics on the hardest places yeah. to do business. And Uganda ranks 127 <laughs> yep. out of 190 places well, that are the hardest to do business I'm in. I'm so glad you mentioned that because not only do we pick, you know, one of the hardest countries to do business in, but we pick the hardest areas in that country <laughs> to do business. And we don't work in the city. We work in tiny rural agrarian villages where we have to build out the infrastructure for our business. So we create, I mean, Litter created the most difficult probably map, but that's our heart to target you know, kind of unreached um, women who who don't have access to nonprofit services um, or income opportunities, and and their kids are literally dying because they don't have enough food. But do the governments put up obstacles in your path, which make it even more difficult? I mean, in addition mm-hmm. to it being a very remote, impoverished place, yeah. sometimes you find that governments will put up big roadblocks. Yes, we've had to navigate some of those. I mean, the Ugandan government has actually been very supportive of our of our work. Um, I think a little confused by it at times because we're a for-profit and a non-profit. So I don't think they can totally, they're like, wait a minute, are you a we're profit or you nonprofit? And we're like, no, we're both because that's what we need to do to yeah. bring these, you know, women out of poverty. So I think they've had a hard time wrapping their head around that, but um, they've been supportive, and and now we're getting some support. You know, something I, I'll get to talk about in the next couple months as it unfolds, but through the U.S. government as well, that that gives us some coverage over there, which will be really fun to, you know, create this new sector of manufacturing. Um, for you know products like this out of Uganda so we're excited to become more and more sophisticated as a manufacturer um, and one of the the bigger ones you know in this category out of East Africa um, and I suspect we'll we'll have a lot more we'll have a lot more engagement with the government yeah. <laughs> as we do that so it'll be interesting to see hopefully that'll go well yeah so in in doing all of this it's just such an incredible story where did confidence come from for you Knowing that you didn't have the answers, but having the confidence to really go after figuring it out. Where did that come from? The audacity to do it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Just felt like a calling. I mean, I think it came from, I mean, my heart, my my faith. This just push um, that's always been bigger than me. And I think that's... That's why I think this at every season, this is so daunting what we're doing. I mean, there are moments where I'm like, how? Wait, how did this even happen? <laughs> I feel like I'm like, you know, a character in, in a story that I didn't write or something, you know, and it's always, it's always been so much bigger than me and the opportunities that we've had. I mean, I am not strategic enough or smart enough um, or anything to, to make any of this kind of happen. And, and it, it's always felt like we're part of a larger story. And I think that's given me, um, the audacity, the courage, um, to, to do it. Cause I know it's not about me and it's so much bigger 
than I am. And I think my prayer has always been just like, Lord, help me not screw this up. Like you're doing something so amazing. And I'm like, just a human, you know, and I'm like, (laughs) so flawed, like, please help me not um, get in the way of what you're doing. And I think that um, knowing that it's just bigger, um, you know, and, and I think the burden is heavy because it's people's lives it's not just like we're running a business and if something doesn't work like shoot that's really hard the business didn't work it's like they're you know they're women who can't feed their kids you know if if we're not able to you know give them the work opportunity and and that is a heavy burden to bear and I think I wouldn't be able to carry that if I didn't think that it was just way bigger than me and I think that is what pushes me every day to in my case, just be a better entrepreneur (laughs) and to be a better leader and, you know, to let go when I need to let go and to get out of the way when I need to get out of the way and and, and be able to do that. Because I just, it's this beautiful thing that I feel lucky to be a part of. And yeah, my goal is to just not get in the way of its growth, you know, and to um, have the courage to continue. You have two beautiful boys who greeted right. me at the door when I, <laughs> I came in. They are still very young, yes. and so they don't likely have the ability to comprehend what you're doing. But as you fast forward, mm-hmm. what do you hope they will take away from the experience that you are having, that you all are having as a family? Yeah, I've, I've thought a lot about that lately. It's funny because I've been trying to explain to my four-year-old, and he's like, Mommy, why do you have to go to work? Like, why do you have to? And I'm like, oh, buddy. So, I, you know, I had to say, you know what, Life? Like, I he loves milk and he loves bacon. Those are, like, his two favorite well, things. I said, I said, you know, Life, there's some, there's some little kids in the world who they don't have milk and they don't have bacon, and their, their mommies can't give it to them and they're hungry you know and then he goes into all the questions of like why is it happening there wait there's kids that don't have mommies and like he's just you know we really talk about that and I try to talk about it in his language but and say you know basically if you sum it up what I'm doing is I'm helping the mommies get milk and bacon so they can feed their kids you know and in summary that's what I do you know and so he he knows that and so now when I go to work he goes Mommy, you're helping the kids get bacon and milk. And I'm like, yes, that is exactly what. So he's excited. And he, you know, and he's talked to me and said, Mommy, I want to help you do, like, can I help, can I help the little kids too? And, you know, so I think it's been fun to already start talking to him about the work that I'm doing and see that, like, you know, my oldest, like his heart's so big and he wants to help too and be a part of it and, and what that's going to look like in the future. Um, is exciting. We have this uh, small house that I built that's actually currently being used by one of our women as a primary school that she started. So it has 200 students at it. But I built it over the years out of raw material. It's on the Nile River, a half a mile from our, our workshop and training center. And just, you know, it's built out of Riverstone and, you know, papyrus roofs and all of the, you know, local builders who built our training center. I just, you know, pay them a small amount and do one part of the building. It's still like not totally finished. But my, my dream was someday, you know, would have this house where, where my family could spend summers. And my kids, you know, wouldn't think about giving as going on, you know, a quick service trip to help someone else. But, but, but as, as a exchange, as a way to get to know others who are different than them and shape each other's lives mutually. Because I think that's really what a call has been for me. It's, um, I mean, these women that we work with, like, I feel like they've raised me in some ways. Like, I, I, I see the world differently because of them. I see my faith differently. I see community differently. And 
my role in the world. I, I mean, they've really taught me what it's like to, to be a woman. And, and I want the same for my kids, not just for them to be a part of giving back, but actually learning and creating friendships um, and, and community with, with people who are very different than they are. You know, we live in Highland Park, which is one of the most affluent, you know, zip codes in the country. And, and with my kids, I want them to be able to, you know, have that experience here, but also feel completely comfortable in a village in East Africa with their friends that they'll make there and see the world in that holistic way. And so that's my, my hope and my dream for my kids. That's really beautiful. Yeah. That's really beautiful. Thank you. We ask every person who comes on the podcast for a single piece of advice, a life hack, a mantra, as you think about other young women who are listening, who may have a dream, a vision, a cause, a passion. What's your advice for them? Never, ever, ever give up. It's easy to look at a colon now, and, and I mean, it's working. What we're doing is working on the retail side. It's working on the job creation side on the nonprofit side, but that wasn't always the case. And and I think there could have been so many times I could have quit, given up. Um, I mean, every month probably in the past 15 years, there was an opportunity to do that. And I think the only thing that's really set us apart is um, never give up and always work to make this model better. When something didn't work, we didn't let it bring us down we just thought okay well let's tweak it (laughs) let's improve it clearly this isn't working so let's innovate and you know create a better solution and so I think for any any woman at any stage you know with kids or you know without kids or single or um it's just bottom line put one foot in front of the other take that first step don't be afraid to do it and just have the courage to keep on walking because I think it takes you to amazing places Brittany, thank you so much. This is such a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you. To learn more about Brittany and the Ecola Project, you can visit our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. There you'll find links to the Ecola Project as well as a few photographs from today's visit. You'll also find links to other episodes featuring inspiring women who, like Brittany, are having an incredibly positive impact on others and on the world. As always, thanks so much for listening. 